The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Good morning, LCC. Uh, I don't know if actually I introduced myself before, but my name is Gareth. In addition to being a, thank you, uh, in addition to being uh, the Life Group Director, I'm also a elder candidate here. Um, and part of that means that every so often I, uh, I get up and I'll be sharing with you guys. Um, and today we are continuing on with our series, which I'm not entirely sure what it's called. It's either Psalms of Summer or Summer of Psalms. The, the, the circular logo doesn't really help us and Kylan wasn't entirely sure. So you do you. Regardless of what it's called, it is summer and we'll be spending some time looking at the Psalms. Um, And we tend to do this every year as a bit of an annual event to kick the year off. Um, And perhaps some time would be well spent talking about why we spend time in the Psalms at all. It's a bit of a a strange book to kind of be kicking things off with. Well, the Bible is a collection of 66 different books written across over 1,500 years by about 40 different authors. And as Christians, we believe that this is a collection of books is the story of God redeeming his people and the world throughout history. We believe that these texts have been God-breathed. This doesn't mean that some like Anglo-Saxon old white bloke living in the clouds came and expired, breathed out on a page and out-tumbled the King James Bible. But we do believe that God inspired human authors to reveal his nature. Um, There's this great text from 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, complete, and equipped for every good work. A criticism of Christianity can be that it is too heady, too focused on like right adherence to doctrine and not enough time spent dedicated to the heart, to the affections. God cares deeply about what we believe but he also cares deeply about our hearts and our souls. It is in the Psalms that we find Scripture which is not only filled with intricate and complex theological assertions about the nature of God and the way that this world works, but it also speaks to the nature of our hearts. There's this beautiful quote by the reformer John Calvin. I have been known to call this book not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. That's what this book of Psalms does. It holds our hearts up to it, gives a completeness to the human experience. We have a God who doesn't merely care about what we think, but he cares about our hearts and how we feel. The Psalms are a collection of 150 songs which have been collected into the sort of five sub-books. And, that, and they've been used historically as these corporate songs uh, in, and still are used in other church traditions in the gathered worship of God's people. And today, uh, if you'd like to bust your Bibles out, we'll be turning to Psalm 139, a psalm written by King David, a guy who led this super crazy but also kind of messed up life. He was the king of Israel. Uh, he lusted after and slept with some other dude's wife, and then he killed that dude, uh, and then he tried to cover up that illegitimate pregnancy. Uh, Messed up guy, but as far as we know, this psalm was probably written towards the end of his life, and we're sort of seeing here um, that he finished his life in faithful relationship with the person who he was described as sort of following after his heart. David was described as a man after God's own heart. So, um, it would be helpful to have the Bible out because there's going to be 24 verses. It's a fair bit of text, um, and I'd love for you guys to be able to follow along with me. Let's read it together. It'll be up on the screen. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word was on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together. God, this is a text, I'm sure, which little moments are throughout, which is familiar to us. I pray uh, that this text, that these words strike us new this morning, that we see how big and majestic you are that we are able to reflect on the state of our hearts and of our beings and our relationship with you. And I pray, Father, that as I share this, that there is more of you and less of me. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. In my experience, most people are looking at someone else. In my experience, most people are looking at someone else. And also, in my experience, that looking provokes comparison. And as Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. That comparison kind of leads to a sense of inadequacy. And then something that I've noticed, the more conversations I've had about this, is that many of us believe that this is a problem that we alone have. It's interesting, the intellectual envies the athlete. The athlete envies the family man. The family man envies the single. We're all looking at something that somebody else has and longing for it. But it's also really curious. I have this dear friend of mine who came up to me one time and said that he was really impressed with how I kind of dealt with X, Y, and Z. And how that kind of made him feel a bit inadequate. And he was hoping that one day he'd be able to do the same. The ironic thing is, I thought the exact same thing about him. And, and then I suppose to continue illustrating this point, I was asked the other day if I was a nice guy. Um, 
I, I was being asked not only because this person actually thought I was a nice guy, surprisingly, but they were asking for some advice on how to be a nice guy themselves. This isn't the first time it's happened, um, particularly at my workplace. I've got a bit of a reputation uh, for being a bit smiley, for being rather friendly, um, and for not having a bad word to say about anyone. And the moments that I show my frustration, people are surprised that I have it in me. But I'm surprised that those moments for those people don't shine a light all the way through to the very core of my being and I am thoroughly exposed in front of them. Because I know that oftentimes, even though I'm acting kind of nice, just like so many of us are, like I'm harboring resentment, I'm harboring insecurity. It's an interesting Japanese proverb which claims that we all have three faces. One that we show to the world, a second that we show to our close friends and family, and a third that you never show anyone. This proverb contends that that final mask is the truest reflection of ourselves. That final face is the truest reflection of ourselves. And a concept that I would love to lean into over the course of this sermon is this quote from Tim Keller. Um, and I believe that it'll really sort of be drawn out as we walk through this psalm. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. And to be known but not loved is our greatest fear. I think it's probably better reframed for our purposes. Our deepest insecurity is that we are, no, we are loved but not known. And then our deepest fear is that we will then be known and not loved. Many of us are aware of the ways that we fall short, not only before God, but there's this general anxiety as, as we move through the world that people will see us, see us as we really are. They'll cut through to that third mask, that third face, and in that moment we will be rejected. And humans have been trying to hide ourselves for a long time. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. For those of you who are new to church, this is a big overarching idea in Christianity. We believe that God created the world and it was good. The narrative then shifts to Adam and Eve living in the garden, living in this good work, the good garden, walking with God in perfect relationship. Adam and Eve, who had only been asked like just to do one thing, like just don't eat from the tree, like in the middle of the garden. Um, and I dare say that many of you have heard this story. They were tempted and they fell. The serpent deceived Eve, who took the fruit from the tree, ate and shared it with Adam, who stood by passively and let it happen, both equally culpable, both ashamed once they realized what they'd done. Do you remember what they did in response to that realization? They became aware of their nakedness, covered themselves and hid from God. There was in this moment a separation between the face they were happy to show to the world and show to God and the one that they felt represented them. They developed this third face that they wanted to hide. We've been trying to hide from ourselves and from God for a very long time. So what do I do? How am I like Adam? What are my fig leaves that I use to kind of cover up my nakedness? I lean actually into sort of like traditional identity structures. Like in our, like in our world for hundreds of years, we have been made right with ourselves and with one another by doing good things, by being responsible in the workplace, by being competent, by being respected, by doing all the right things. And it's, and it's funny. And then we look at all those other people who've put up this nice clean veneer and we assume that they're not doing exactly the same thing. Um, and then we read this text. That verse 1 through 10, which we'll have a look at in a moment, honestly, this text is terrifying to me. 
The portion of the passage that we're referring to, I think, draws out three aspects of God's nature, which I'd like to quickly hit on. First is his omniscience. Omni meaning all, ishence, knowing, effectively. God is all-knowing. God is omnipresent. He is all-present. He is everywhere. And God is eternal. God always was, always is, and always will be. So let's have a quick look at the first three verses. Here, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. This God seems distant, but he knows all about you and I. He has searched us and really seen us. He knows our comings and goings, not only in our bodies, but also in our minds. The scary thing for me is even before a word was on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. As someone who has hurt many people with my words and have like become better as I've gotten a little bit older um, at sort of like restraining my tongue, it's before I spoke that God knew the words that would have been on my tongue. God knows what I would have said if I'd been a little bit more disinhibited. You know what I mean? If I, had, if I had a little less restraint, he would have seen me as I am. And we go to the next verse. Um, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Commentators believe that this idea of God hemming in him wasn't like sowing or throwing a fence around, but the behind and before was in reference to the fact that God, while laying his hand on us in the present, was also in the past, behind, and in the future before. And as we go, so that's this eternality, and before is his all knowing. And then we go to the next chunk of verses. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? God is impossible to flee from. No matter where you run, he is there. He is everywhere. The psalmist wants to drive that home. If I ascend to heaven, where is heaven? Up. It's just like if I descend to Sheol, Sheol is this word for the grave or the depths, he is down. It's just like, if I rise on the wings of the morning, that's this reference to the dawn, that's over in the east, or go to the sea. Um, David writing this was writing this in the Middle East. Where is the big lump of water relative to him? It's towards the west. So that's, this, is, this is David saying, you are there, whether it's up or down or east or west. That's terrifying to me. As someone who's trying to hide who kind of wants God to see the nice things I do on the outside, but not the insecure me on the inside. To return to that story about what happened with Adam and Eve, after realizing their nakedness, their inadequacy, they hid. The narrative describes God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. God then, not finding Adam, begins to search. When God searched for Adam in the Garden of Eden, he asked a question. For those of you who may have heard of this before, you know what he said, Adam, where are you? In light of this text, we know that question was kind of redundant. Um, God knew exactly where Adam was, hiding, kind of hiding behind that rock. Um, it's just like this all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present, eternal God is able to see right through our coping strategies, right through our fig leaves. And so then what should we do? What is the point of me leaning into those traditional identity structures in doing the right things? I haven't fooled myself. I surely haven't fooled God. I think that this is a really cool illustration um, Beethoven, we all know Beethoven. Um, and Beethoven, when he was going deaf, actually wrote the best stuff of his entire career when he could no longer hear the music of those around him. 
When he started, he was kind of generic. He was probably like a 18th century version of Nickelback. All the songs kind of sound the same. Um, or perhaps for the church world, it's kind of like um, all the worship bands which sound like a bad version of U2. Um, like, like his stuff all sounded like his teacher, Joseph Haydn. Um, and it was actually when he lost his hearing and he was barely able to hear his own music, when he would have had his head up next to the piano where he could barely hear the vibrations and feel the vibrations of his piano, that he wrote his real masterpieces. You know, like the, like the Fifth Symphony. Like, da-da-da-da. Yeah, you know that one? That, like, he, like he wrote that when he was pretty much deaf. There's this great quote from this musical historian, Arthur Brooks who has this great insight onto the life of Beethoven and his unquestionable brilliance. It seems a mystery that Beethoven became more original and brilliant as a composer in inverse proportion to his ability to hear his own and others' music. But maybe that isn't so surprising. As his hearing deteriorated, he was less influenced by the prevailing compositional fashion and more by the musical structures forming inside his own head. Deafness freed Beethoven as a composer because he, is, he no longer had society's soundtrack in his ears. And there's some real goodness there. There's some real goodness. Really helpful stuff. But is this the answer? Is the answer to our conundrum that we are inadequate? God totally knows it just to give up on the pretense or reliance on those traditional identity structures and just be completely ourselves. To know that haters going to hate. So you, the player, just got to play, 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 play. Um, that was my attempt to make the sermon relevant by referencing a Taylor Swift song from 2014. Um, um, so how has the world responded to the fact that we struggle to measure up to society's expectations, to others' expectations, to dare I say it, God's expectations? The response has been self-esteem, self-acceptance. Uh, and that's what Tay-Tay was getting at. The solution to our fear of inadequacy is to throw caution to the wind to just accept ourselves. You be you. Yes, queen. Go be a king. You're killing it. But if only we were all able to not care what anybody else thinks and just get down to this sick beat. That's my last reference to the song. I'm so sorry. Uh, thank you. Thank you. The applause was well deserved. Um, but I think there's something that we know deep down is that PR, that, that, sorry, self-esteem, it's PR. It's public relations. It's marketing. It's a lie. At least that's been my experience, is that self-esteem doesn't really work. For all those attempts to not care what other people think, to just accept ourselves regardless, that we deep down kind of feel that we're a wee bit broken. At least part of us is bent in the wrong direction. We have this prevailing sense of pride, greed, anger, or lust. We need to be saved. We desire in our moments to be delivered, to be taken away from this, from these misalignments, these stones in our shoes, the smell that just kind of won't go away. The traditional identity structures looked outward, to find the right in. You know, we'd go outwards in. The modern structures look inside to your own truth to then take that out. But it's really interesting. Um, the scientific community kind of is sort of starting to swing back against it. There's this uh, cognitive scientist, Laurie Santos from Yale, who's starting to say that she's feeling that self-esteem's kind of dangerous and it's faulty because it's based on our performance. There's only so many times after you stumble and fall that you can kind of come back and say, yes, queen. You're so great. 
Like there's only so many times that that can kind of work before you're like, yeah, I'm actually not that awesome. I'm not sure that that's the best way forward. C.S. Lewis has this great line, if we have desires that can't be filled in this world, perhaps we were made for another. I'm not sure that my own love for myself can fill the void which I know is there. So the question is, could there be a love who knows us, really knows us and loves us anyway? Because if we're afraid that we are only loved because we're not known, is there a love that could know us, really know us and love us and not reject us? As we have a quick look at this next passage, verses 13 onwards, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, Every one of them, the days that were formed for me. God knows every day that we would live. When as yet there were none of them, and that was before it even started. He's eternal. He's outside time, looking into the past, looking into the future, and is with us right now. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand, and I awake, and I am still with you. That's a crazy thing to read. We've spent this whole last portion of the text emphasizing kind of how big God is, kind of compared to us. But here we see not only how big God is, but how close God is. I love this idea of eminent and imminent. Eminent meaning big. God is both eminent and he is imminent. He is right there. He is closer than your breath. He knows everything about you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Our deepest insecurity is that we are loved by others because we're not known. Our deepest fear is that we will then be known and not loved. But we have a God who knows us, who deeply loves us. And this is a psalm that's all about God's deep, personal, intimate knowledge of every person who has ever lived, not just about the writer David. And how do we then know that we are loved? And this is an insight that David didn't have. As Christians, we believe that the evidence of that is Christ, the person of Jesus. In the garden with Adam and Eve, we actually even get to a point in the story where God made the world. Adam and Eve had kind of stuffed up. They hid and God had asked that question, Adam, where are you? Let's not miss the significance of that question. God knew where they were, but God asked that question, Adam, where are you? God was not looking for Adam and Eve in time and space. He was looking for them relationally. Adam and Eve, after that question, were left with this harsh reality of what life was going to look like outside of the garden. There would be pain, there would be sickness, and there would be death. That is the world that we are living in right now, and 2020 was a wonderful reminder of that. But in the midst of all of these promises about how hard life was going to be, God hinted at the fact that one day, this was the first glimpse of the gospel, hinted at the fact that one day there would be the child of the woman who would bear, who would crush the head of a serpent and redeem the world. God loves us and knows us so well that he entered into history, lived a perfect life we couldn't, died the death we couldn't, and rose so that we would be able to answer that call, Adam, where are you? Mankind, where are you? 
Where are you? As a super quick aside, I'd really, I don't want to skip this chunk of the text. Psalm 139 is, a, is popular on Christian artwork, mugs, and phone wallpapers, primarily because of those verses we just read. Um, the next chunk, chunk of the psalm doesn't make it on coffee mugs for some reason. Um, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Um, do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Yes, queen. Um, yeah, that's probably not the most like tweetable tweetable verse in the Bible. Um, and this is a lump of scripture that's normally breezed over when preachers deal with this psalm. At Life Center Church, one of our church values, which we can kind of see up there on the, on the banner, is that we're biblically based. Um, part of that means we don't want to shy away from uncomfortable or difficult passages of Scripture. And I hope that that series provokes more of you guys to spend time in the Psalms. And if you do, you'll find lots of Psalms that are actually really similar to this passage. They're called like these imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory kind of means like cursing psalms, angry psalms. And, and when we're going back to that quote from Calvin at the start, like that there is not an emotion that one can experience that is not reflected in this book as in a mirror, anger is something that we experience. But I'd love to draw out two points. Don't just be angry, pray. This is not Scripture teaching us that it's okay to hate. It is a Scripture teaching us that it's okay to pray. David, I think, here is far more honest with himself and with God than we often are. We kind of just want to like pretend that we're probably not angry, that we're probably not kind of hating other people. Um, but taking that to the Lord is actually super, super helpful. And that leads us to the next point. We then want to kind of be praying for the right stuff. David, the writer of the psalm, was battling against flesh and blood, those wicked that he was referring to, who have malicious intent, who he was warring against. We, however, um, unless some of you guys are engaged in some stuff that I'm really not aware of, um, maybe your neighbor's playing music too late at night and you've sort of like declared like a blood war against their family or something like that, or like me, I'm currently renovating a house and I'm probably using power tools too late. Um, you know, like that would understand if my, if my neighbours wanted to, you know, uh, effectively curd stomp me. Hate me. Uh, what's, what's the word that, uh, yeah, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Um, I'm, I'm probably not sure that many of us have great reason to have uh, flesh and blood enemies. And it's actually really interesting. The New Testament talks about the fact that we now don't war against flesh and blood, but we, wow, we war against powers and principalities. Our enemy um, in, this, in this world, particularly in our comfortable context, um, isn't other people. It's, it's ourselves and it's the enemy. Because that's something else that we believe as Christians, is that we live in a supernatural world where there's supernatural stuff going on and we believe that prayer actually works. So anger isn't in and of itself the problem. It's about pointing it at the wrong stuff. So... As the band comes up and we shift to that last passage of text, I think my prayer for us and the lesson that 139 really has for us is that we see ourselves as we really are, under the gaze of this eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God, this eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God 
who knows us more deeply than we fear, but loves us more than we could possibly imagine. We need to know how broken we are. It's equally important for us to know how loved we are. So let's have a look at this last couple of verses. How David finishes. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We have one more week of our sort of 21 days of prayer and fasting here as a church. And something that I'm going to be doing, and if you'd like to join me, that would be rad, um, is spend some time meditating and reading through Psalm 139. There's this cool little four-step approach which we've got up there, which I kind of found helpful. Um, Reflect, rejoice, repent, renew. Reflect on God truly seeing us, really seeing us as we are, and his bigness compared to our smallness. Rejoice that his knowledge of us doesn't lead to rejection, but instead through action, he came into the world as Jesus to redeem us. That is something to rejoice in. Not only in that, but in the little things that happen throughout our days. And then repent for that brokenness in our lives, which we live out every day that makes it necessary. The point of this psalm and the point of knowing our brokenness is not self-loathing but it's meant to be point us towards how wonderful God is comparatively. And then finally, allow yourself to be renewed in the light of this love. And for some of you who might find praying hard, a little bit of wisdom I'd love to leave you with. There's this great book, Tiny Habits, which the, where the author talks about, like, if you want to start flossing your teeth, just start by, like, flossing one tooth. Like, your dentist might not be, like, super impressed just with, like, one little chunk of gum being great. But that one little habit, it needs to be small, it needs to be achievable, it needs to be repeatable. So for some of you, perhaps, who've let your prayer lives fall away, who really struggle with intimacy with God, maybe just start a 60-second timer. Just try to keep that focus, thinking about the Lord in that time and reflecting on that question. As we close, Adam, where are you? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.